Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Let me begin with this. If you live long enough, every human being who's ever walked the face of this planet will one day reflect upon, sometimes be haunted by the questions of, who am I? Like, where do I find a sense of identity and significance? Why am I here? What am I doing taking up space on this planet? Hugh Moorhead was a philosopher at Northeastern University, and he wrote a little book with kind of an interesting format. He asked 250 of the leading thinkers and writers of the 20th century to respond to the question, what is the meaning of life? Now, these were all individuals who had written on the topic, so he asked them to simply send them a copy of one of their books and write on the flyleaf their answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? So it's, it's kind of a fascinating book, but also a little depressing because the vast majority of them, they wrote back and said that they didn't know what the meaning of life was. A number of them said, there is no meaning to life. A few of them wrote back and said, hey, if you figure it out, please let me know, because I'd really like to know. So Isaac Asimov, you heard of him before? He's a famous writer. He said this, as far as I can see, there is no purpose. Albert Ellis, one of the preeminent psychologists of the 20th century, said, life has no intrinsic meaning. And here's one that really struck me. An author, Michael Ananias, said, I don't want to retreat into the justly despised positivism, but to question the meaning of life proposes its own answer. Life, if you think of it as an assertion of meaning and process, always exceeds assigned meaning. To offer a parody of technical language, the set of all meanings is included in life, which is an additional meaning, so expands the set by a hyposet and so forth. (laughs) So any statement, any such question expands the frame exponentially. What I'm saying in a nutshell is the meaning of life is meaning. Okay, does that clear it all up for everybody? Yeah, all right, well, let's just pray. We can close this up then. That is one of the great minds of, of our day. Is it any wonder that suicide is now the number two killer of teenagers in our culture today? Folks, that's unprecedented in history, but it's what happens when we live our lives just detached from any kind of sense of meaning or identity. Like, why am I here? Why am I here? Interestingly, Moorhead's book is already out of print. But there is a single sentence that was written by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago that actually tells us everything we need to know about who we are and why we are here. It's found in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesians 2.10, Paul wrote this, for we are God's workmanship. I actually like the New Living Translation. We are God's masterpiece, it says. For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want this verse to really sink in. So we're going to say this out loud together. We're actually going to use the phrase masterpiece when we do. But I want you to reflect on the depths of this truth here. 
You ready? Let's say it together. For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, really everything you need to know about your life, the who and the why, it's all right here. Now, specifically, this particular verse is written to Christians, to people who have put their faith in Jesus and believe that Jesus died for their sins, that he offers forgiveness and eternal life. But many of the principles that we're going to be looking at throughout this series are given universal application in other passages throughout the scriptures. For example, Psalm 145, 15 to 17 says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. Who are you? You are not a cosmic accident. You were created by the master creator of the universe. You are a piece of work by God. And in just a moment, you're going to turn to the person next to you and and say this phrase, you're a piece of work by God. But I want to make sure that we say this with the right inflection, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I know what you're thinking. You're a piece of work by God. Not nice. Don't do that. All right, let's do it. Turn to the person next to you. Say, you are a piece of work by God. Turn to the other person, other side. You are a piece. Some of you are skating the line. I can hear it. You're a piece of work. That was actually my original title. And I looked at it and went, wait a minute. Hold on a second. You're a piece of work. Folks, you are designed by God. You are designed by God. That's, that's an incredible truth. And why were you created? You were created to do good works. It's just one little verse. Those words are so simple, but they run so, so deep. Like it's why people have dreams. It's, it's why we want to make a positive impact on this world in which we live. God didn't just plan you. He also planned good works for you, a specific positive impact for you to have on his world. And so what I want to do this morning is just to kind of walk you through the implications of this one little verse. For we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you have an outline, write this in. First of all, you are not an accident. You are designed by God. Which means I must become grateful for the person God made me to be because I'll never be anybody else. Your body, your temperament, your mind, your personality, uh, your sense of humor, your DNA, all of those things were designed for you by God. And one day, the God who thought up the Milky Way, every galaxy and star and black hole and all the volcanoes and oceans and, and sunsets, one day, that God thought about something else he wanted to create. And that something was you. God is delighted that there should be a you in his universe. Isn't that amazing to process and to think about? You didn't happen by accident. You were here because God wanted there to be a you. The psalmist marvels about this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Praise you. See, this is grounds for worship here. I praise you. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You are God's masterpiece. 
the result of a marvelously creative God. And that's why comparing yourself to somebody else or devaluing the light that God has given you is so spiritually destructive. Now, you are God's unique masterpiece. And God loves you for who you are, not for what you do. Let me say that again, because somebody in here, I think, needs to hear that. God loves you for who you are, not for what you do. Why? Well, you are his. You are his creation. The closest parallel I think we can come up with here on earth would be our children. You know, I love my sons, Nick and Nate, not because they're so intelligent and, and handsome and talented like their dad. No, no, not. A, actually, you get that from their mom. But no, I love my sons because why? Because they're my sons. And I would love them every bit as much if they had a physical or mental handicap and all they could ever do is simply be. Wendy and I love our children because we had a part in their creation, their birth, their upbringing. They are ours. And that is so awesome. One of the most remarkable statements about God is found back in the Old Testament. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel who were just delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And they're this little kind of ragamuffin, riffraff group wandering through the desert, not important, no power to speak of. And listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 7. He said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Like no great armies, no great trade, no great commerce. What did Israel do to cause God to set his affection on them? They did nothing. Nothing. Look at verse 8. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Hmm. The Israelites did nothing to deserve God's favor. They were just his people, and God loved them. Now, of course, God doesn't just love Israel. He wanted to bring his love to all people on the earth through Israel. See, the original plan was that Israel would walk in these good works which God prepared for them. He gave them these commandments, these special ways to live, to experience the good life. So the whole world would know that they are created by a God who loves them. In Genesis 26, God says, I will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And here it is. And through your offspring... All nations on earth will be blessed. See, his plan was to bless Israel as a sign to draw people to Israel and thus to himself. For God so loved the world. People, God didn't set his affection on you because you're so clever or so smart or so successful. It is just his grace. It's his grace read a true story about a guy named Hans who was always trying to teach his little boy Isaac about this concept of grace. And from time to time, Isaac would do something wrong, something he ought to be punished for. And most of the time, Hans would punish him. But every once in a while, just to teach him, Hans would look at his son Isaac and say, Isaac, I ought to punish you right now. But instead, I'm going to cut you some grace. 
And do you know why I'm going to do that, son? And Isaac would look up and say, no, dad, why? And he said, no reason at all. There's never a reason for grace, son. There's never a reason for grace. But one day when Isaac was six years old, he did something really, really bad. And and Hans was furious. He was about to let him have it. And Isaac was scared. And so Isaac looks up at his dad and said, hey, dad, how about you cut me some grace? Now, Hans was really mad. You know the way parents get sometimes. And so he just spoke without thinking. And he said, Isaac, you give me one reason why I ought to cut you some grace. And Isaac looks up at his dad and says, dad, there's never a reason for grace. See, that little guy got it. He got it. That's the way it is with God. There's never a reason for grace. The Lord did not set his affection on you because you are so smart or so successful or even so good. It's just who God is. He's just a gracious God who loves to make his grace available to all people. We say it all the time around here. We are saved by grace alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, not by our own good works. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, right before the verse we're looking at here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that one can boast. And who can receive that grace? Well, God's extended his offer to anyone and everyone. John 1, 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The moment you believe in Jesus, here's what happens. You are created in Christ Jesus. See, not only were you made by God, but when you believe in his son, in that moment, you were created in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a fascinating phrase, in Christ. You know, the apostle Paul uses this phrase, in Christ. Guess how many times? Over 160 times in the New Testament. You are in Christ. For Paul, the most amazing thing about Jesus is that he will live in us and we can live in him. And as we live in Christ, he grows us up into his image. Paul says in Colossians 1.27, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. See, we couldn't have guessed this on our own. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, here's a simple picture of this. Barbara Johnson wrote about taking a little girl with a flu to the doctor's office. And this was a doctor who was used to working with kids, and so he liked to have a little fun with them. And he, he looks in her ears and says, hmm, I, I wonder if I'll find Big Bird in here. The little girl says, no. And, and then he looks up her nose and says, I wonder if Cookie Monster's in here. The little girl says, No. And then he pulls out his stethoscope to check out her heart. And he says, I wonder if Barney is in your heart. And this little girl says, no, Jesus is in my heart. (laughs) Barney's on my underwear. (laughs) She's like, shouldn't be that complicated, buddy. But I'm telling you, it is a remarkable theme. It is the mystery. It is a remarkable theme in the writings of the Apostle Paul, that in our heart of hearts, in the core of our being, Jesus is there. I mean, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That is some deep theological truth. You know, we are separated bodily creatures. So even the person who knows you best 
can't know all about what you're thinking and feeling, but Jesus can. He's closer to you than anybody else. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the spirit of Jesus is indwelling you. And once you invite Jesus into your life, he never leaves. He never leaves you or forsake you. Never will. He set his affection on you. And by the way, he's constantly at work in you to grow you into the person he wants you to be. His handiwork, his craftsmanship, his masterpiece. And that leads us to our final point. God knows which good works we need to grow spiritually. God knows exactly what each person needs to grow spiritually. Like what relationships, what problems, what experiences, what small group, what ministry, what teaching. And God's desire is that it would never become dull or routine. And it'll never look the same for anybody else. I mean, think about how differently God treats each of his children. I ran across this thought-provoking quote from John Ortberg. He wrote this. He said, God had Abraham take a walk, Elijah take a nap, Joshua take a lap, and Adam take the rap. God gave Moses a 40-year timeout. He gave David a harp and a dance. He gave Paul a pen and a scroll. He wrestled with Jacob, argued with Job, whispered to Elijah, warned Cain, and comforted Hagar. He gave Aaron an altar, Miriam a song, Gideon a fleece, and Peter a name. Jesus was stern with a rich young ruler, tender with the woman caught in adultery, challenging with the disciples, blistering with the Pharisees, gentle with children, gracious with the thief on the cross. God never grows two people the same way. God is a handcrafter, not a mass producer. That's good, isn't it? God is a handcrafter, not a mass producer. And now it's your turn because you are God's workmanship too. In this brief time that he has you on this planet, he wants to do something unique through you. So ask him, say, God, how do you want to uniquely grow me into your image? What good works do you have prepared for me? And it's gonna be different for all of us. You know, God grows some people more deeply through intellectual study and others more deeply through worship and others more deeply through relationships and others more deeply through silence and solitude and prayer and others more deeply through creation and nature and still others more deeply when they serve. And we all grow through each of those means, okay? But the degree to which we invest our time and our energy will and should vary from person to person. Why? Because you are God's unique craftsmanship, his unique masterpiece. So ask God, God, how do you want to uniquely grow me in this season of my life into your image? Lead me in this, God. And then just live your life as an adventure from one moment to the next to the next. Say, God, what do you want me to do today? Whose life do you want me to influence? How do you want me to serve today? Now, here's the paradox in all this. Everybody wants meaning and significance and fulfillment in life. We all want to be filled up in life, every one of us. But when I make it my aim to fill myself up in life, I usually end up empty inside. But when I say, God, how do you want to use me to help that person and that person 
and that person. When I let go of my own preoccupation with me, myself, and I, and go on this adventure of just helping other people, well, then God fills me up. God fills me up. I'm the one who ends up blessed. So it all starts with cultivating a servant's heart, saying, all right, God, I'm signing up for this adventure. Like, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whoever you want me to talk to, I will say yes. Now, here's a sobering thought around this. Where in the Bible does God ever tell somebody to do an easy job? (laughs) Think about it. Like, where in the Bible does God ever call somebody and say, hey, hey, Moses, David, Esther, here's what I want you to do. And that person says, oh, sure, I can do that quite easily. Thank you very much. And no one ever responds that way. How do they respond? I'm scared to death. That's why the most common response to God's calling in Scripture is, who who am I, Lord? I, I can't do this. Send somebody else. And God says, no, you go, because I'll go with you, Christ in you. Psychologists tell us that today, boredom has become a significant problem in our culture. Well, it's interesting to me that we never read in the New Testament, then the disciples were bored, okay? Never read that one. It's been said that if you can fully explain your faith in life, then your faith is too small. If you can fully explain your faith in life, your faith is too small. If everything in your life just lines up real easily and logically, you're not letting God stretch you enough. And I think so many Christians miss out on the adventure of doing the good works that God prepared for them because they're busy filling up their life with their own good works. And it's all about success or or comfort or materialism. And in the end, those things are just boring. I mean, God never intended human beings for the same old, same old, same old. Never did. You know, you can think of it like this. One way that you can divide up every person on this planet is how they get into a swimming pool, okay? Think about this. All right, follow me on this one. I've got a point here. Now, some people, they, they, they take the incremental approach, right? You start with one toe, and ooh, that, that's cold. And you go, like, to your ankle, and you're down to your knee, and, like, takes you, like, 20 minutes to get in, and you're miserable the whole time, okay? You can do that. That's one way to get into a pool. Well, what's the other way to get into the swimming pool? Yeah, yeah, cannonball. There it is. Boom, right? Cannonball is designed to create maximum impact. Like you go for it and you make a huge splash. And there's this ripple wave after wave after wave. Folks, that's God's plan for your life. Cannonball. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. So say, where where is there a need? Where is there a need? Where is there a dream? Where is the spirit prompting you to go? You know, only God knows, only God can measure the real impact. Only God can measure the splash effect in your life and in the lives of people around you because there's always a ripple effect from your actions in life. And we have no idea in the moment when we cannonball, the moment we dive right in, we have no idea about that ripple effect, how far that can go. Let me share a little story about ripple effects in life. Years ago, um, some of you may know her, there's a woman by the name of Cheryl Eckerd. 
And Cheryl, she was busy ministering to an elderly gentleman named L.C. O'Bannon. Good works which God prepared for her. Ripple effect. Cheryl happened to mention that Hill Country Bible Church was looking to maybe launch missions efforts into Mexico along the border. And L.C. said, well, I happen to know a guy. I've done some ministry with a pastor, Felipe Garcia, in Eagle Pass, Texas. Okay, good works which God prepared. Ripple effect. I had lunch with Felipe. The next thing I know, I'm down in Eagle Pass exploring ministry opportunities, particularly across the border in Piedras Negras, Mexico. And specifically with a couple, a missionary couple we now support today named Francisco and Alma. Good works which God prepared. Ripple effect. Not long thereafter, Joel and Jackie Holcomb took over as our ministry directors here of missions. And they started in these good works that God had prepared for them. Let me tell you, they had no idea the kind of ripple effect they would have. As they went down to the border and they crossed, they went into Piedras Negras and just started to ask God, God, what are the ministry opportunities here? What are the needs here? It was just one need after another, after another. And God led us the whole way. I mean, God led us to an orphanage led by an individual named Paulino Esquivel. And this, this builder and pastor by the name of Joe. And, and a soup kitchen for hungry children led by Irma. And, and the list just goes on and on and on. And people, we have been ministering with and to these individuals for 20 years. Thousands, no, 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 tens of thousands of lives that have been impacted. Good works which God prepared. I mean, you talk about ripple effect. I know a lot of you in this room right here can talk about how your life has been changed. Hundreds of adults and kids from Hill Country Bible Church have gone down to Mexico and they've impacted lives and they've had their lives changed in the process. But folks, it's so much bigger than Hill Country Bible Church now. There are so many other churches, so many other Christians who've jumped on board. Good works which God prepared. I mean, it's just one ripple after another ripple after another ripple when we make a splash in life. And God still does it in the most incredible ways. You know, I often wonder, what could be accomplished? Like, what could we accomplish if our vision of reaching every man, woman, and child with the good news of the grace of Jesus was as important to each of us as stay healthy, get ahead, and have fun in life, which is kind of the default slogan of our society. Folks, you are God's masterpiece. And God wants your life, whatever season of life you're in, God wants your life to have eternal significance. Nobody but God knows the real impact one life can have on the rest of the world. I mean, financial journals can list the 100 richest people on earth, and Sports Illustrated can rank the 100 greatest athletes in the world. But only God knows where the true ripples are coming from. Let me tell you, it has nothing to do with money, titles, education. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit of God in a humble human life. One last thought. You know, maybe one of the greatest ripple makers in the kingdom of God is in this room right now. Who knows, maybe they're sitting next to you. It could be you. Wouldn't that be something? I know this, that's what God wants. That's why God created you. That's why God created you and you and you and you and you and you and you, to make ripples. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, what a powerful passage of Scripture. One verse. And we need to all reflect on the depths of the truth that's contained here. That we are not an accident, that we were created by you to live in you and to live for you. And wherever we are in life, you have specific good deeds for each of us to do here on earth. And my prayer is that we would begin to discover those good works as we go through this series together. And God, if there's anybody here in this room or watching online, and if you've never received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, that can happen today. Just right now in the quietness of your heart, reach out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm not trusting in myself. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you alone are the one who can forgive and give eternal life. And so I'm putting my faith in you, Jesus. God, would you enable all of us who follow you to do life with you from one moment to the next and in simple trust, just do whatever it is that you place before us and to do it with you, in you, through you, with joy and confidence in our Lord and Savior and friend, Jesus. It's in his name we pray.